Well, we're going to get started in a new message series today. We're just going to call this series Hope. Hope. And we're going to be in the book of First Peter. Well, we're, in, we're going to be in the book of First Peter. If you're new to the Bible, you're, you're way off to the right side of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. Back it off a little bit and you'll be at First Peter. Uh, this is one of the letters or sometimes what we call epistles in the New Testament. It's a letter written by a guy named Peter. Now, you might know who Peter is. Peter was Jesus' kind of leading disciple. Uh, I, I, there's lots that I love about Peter. He's one of those guys whose like mouth was shooting off before his brain had a cat, had a chance to catch up. Um, guilty. Uh, I know all about that. He was he was brash and, and and stepped out a little too soon. Except sometimes he he was his timing was perfect. Peter was the one at Pentecost last. Week We celebrated Pentecost Sunday and Peter was the one after the Holy Spirit came in power, tongues of fire, loud uh, sound of rushing wind. All the people there are speaking in tongues and uh, speaking in language. They're praising God in other languages and people around are so baffled and confused by that. And they're trying to explain it away. And Peter is the one who stands up and preaches the gospel message. Say, listen, friends, this is what was foretold by the by the prophet Joel, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people, on all flesh, regardless of age or gender. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to function in these ways. And, uh, you know, I, I do like to point out every time I get the chance that Peter, according to Acts chapter 2, it says, preached for a long time. I love that. So, buckle up. Um, just trying to follow a good example is all I'm saying. And, uh, now... When you read the, when you read sort of people who write about books in the New Testament, they're called commentators because they make comments about what's written. So commentaries will often say, well, First Peter wasn't really written by Peter. It was just written by people who liked Peter, people who were friends or fans of Peter, people who followed Peter. And they kind of make kind of case for that. And there could be some possibility of that. Um, other scholars will say, no, it, it really is written by Peter. I think they make the stronger argument. I think this, these really are the words of the Apostle Peter. And my understanding would have been written somewhere in the middle of the first century A.D., about 30 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And so, do any of us remember things from 30 years ago? You do, don't you? Yeah, so, you know, it's still pretty relatively fresh. Um, and so he, he writes uh, those things. Now, because we're going to start in a message series in this book of First Peter, uh, it's going to take us a while to go through it. So all we're going to deal with today is chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. That's it. That's all we're going to cover. It's just going to like go nice and slow. So um, we're, we're going to get, get started with what's called in First Peter chapter 1, what's called the, the salutation or the introduction, kind of the beginning portion of a letter. The opening part of any letter is, is important because it will tell us who the letter is for, who it's from, the authorization or the reason for writing that letter. You know, sometimes I get asked in my position, sometimes I get asked to write reference letters. A uh, few of you have had me write a reference letter for you. You know, it always begins something like, you know, to... Mr. Jones, manager, sales department, company XYZ, you know, my name is Brian Weeb, I'm the lead pastor at Bethany Church in Fresno, and I'm writing to offer a character reference for, you know, Miss Jones, for this position that's been open in your company, etc. It's not really a complicated thing, but it's really necessary to establish 
who it's for, who's writing it, what it's about, why I'm writing this letter. And uh, this, it, we needed to sort of grasp the what and the why of a letter, particularly in Scripture. Now, when any time you're reading letters in the New Testament, you're reading someone else's mail. Remember that. You are, you're peeking in and reading someone else's mail. But because it's God's Word, it's the inspired uh, Word of God, and we're, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's also your mail. It's also for you. So it's really someone else's mail, but you're included in that. You are included in that. So that's really important. Well, we're going to read First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Next week, I'll have, uh, we'll have Bibles to distribute. But if you are reading one of those church Bibles, it's page 1023. 1 Peter 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word. Okay, so let's start with this. Who does, to whom does Peter write? You can see right there in in verse one, three things to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. And then he names these in these five provinces, which are now part of Turkey. We've got Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are kind of the northern part of today's Turkey. So, um, when you says God's chosen people, that can also be translated as as God's elect. And if you're reading the New International Version, the ESV, or another translation of the Bible, it it'll, it might say God's elect or the elect ones um, of, of people. Really, it's just a way of saying I'm writing to people in the family of faith. I'm writing to those who are believers in Jesus, followers. Of him. And it includes you and me because as a believer in Jesus, you are one of God's chosen elect people. Now, this really gets to be a problem for a lot of folks. Did God choose you or did you choose him? And great schisms have happened over this. And, and books with really fine print and many pages have been written about this, this dilemma. I'm, all I'm going to tell you is this. Did God choose you or did you choose him? The answer is yes. That's it. That's the answer. And uh, don't fry your brain trying to figure it out. Uh, now, Peter acknowledges this important thing that we live as foreigners or exiles. New King James Version uses the word pilgrims in a land where they don't naturally belong, right? There's sort of actually a double meaning to this because this is a fairly remote part of the Roman Empire. Not a lot of people live there. Small villages or small towns kind of scattered with with great distances. And we think that many people in that region were actually colonists or settlers. It's one of the ways the the Roman Empire, uh, you know, maintained control was by sending people up, say, from Rome or from some other part of the empire, they'd resettle them in those areas and say, hey, you're Romans, that's now part of our empire, you're going to go live there. Maybe it was like um, 
you know, some of you have, have, uh, you know, forebears who, who moved to North America because they got some free land. They were settlers and it was really attractive and, and that's how they settled. So there was part of that going on. Um, and, and they're, they're in this kind of sparsely populated area. So foreigners or exiles, you know, in political terms, temporary residents. There's also a possible Pentecostal connection here for Peter, because he's writing three of those five provinces that he mentioned. People from those regions were also represented at Pentecost. You can read that in chapter 2. And so we think possibly some Jews that had relocated, who are now believers, um, who are in that, in that region. So you've got, you know, movement. People traveled then too, just as we do now. They got around. They, they went places. And so you've got people who are not native to that area. But I think Peter also has a deeper meaning for them. Because as believers now, as followers of Christ, they're living as foreigners in that their real citizenship is in God's empire, God's eternal heavenly kingdom. It is possible that even some may have moved there to escape persecution. You go to, to where it's a little safer, where there's a little less population around, you're escaping persecution and you may have, have moved there if you were a believer. And that's partly supported because later on Peter's going to address the problem of persecution of Christians in this, in this area. I don't know if, how many of you, we, we should ask this. Um, okay, how many of you were, are, came to like, Fresno or the Fresno area is like, let's say, post-high school. I mean, post-high school. Okay? So, those of you with your hands up, you are, you came as a, as a, in a sense, a foreigner, and you felt sort of the, the difference of trying to fit in. Um, all right, I'm going to ask another question. Okay, how many of you came to Bethany Church post-high school? About half or so, about half of us. And you, in the same way, you move into a community and it takes a while, doesn't it, to feel like you fit in, that you belong, that you're, that you're kind of in, so to speak. That, there's that separation of, of who's in, who's out. This is kind of natural, happens as, as humans. This is kind of a natural process. Well, in the case of these people, right, they're not native citizens, not of those provinces, but also not of this world. So if you've ever felt like you don't quite fit somewhere, you don't quite belong, if you're a bit restless in this world, you don't feel like you're quite home, there's a good reason for that. You're not home. You're a foreigner. This is not where your real true citizenship is. Um, In fact, it's one good reason to have compassion on people who are Foreigners on our soil, whether they're here legally or, Ill, or illegally, we have compassion on people because you know it, it's hard to fit in sometimes when you're a foreigner. People like me, okay, here's a picture of a, if you've ever wondered what a green card looks like, that's my green card. It's a little bit green on the back. Uh, it's just a great picture. I just love it. You can see my thumbprint up there, right? So I have that because I'm not a citizen, not yet, right? Be- but people like me, we know what it means to try to fit in as a foreigner. But did you know in this world, you are an exile? You're a foreigner in this, 
in this world if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're taking notes in your insert today, you'd write this one down. Every believer is a temporary resident. Every believer in Jesus is a temporary resident. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a temporary resident? Well, let me, let me draw one example out. In, it's um, pretty common. What I've noticed is that, that most foreigners maintain some ties to the homeland. Right? In our city, we have Filipinos and Laotians and Mexicans. We've got even some Germans. We've got some Canadians, right? You've got people in, in this city from all over the world, and they all, in some ways, maintain ties to the homeland, whether they mean to or not, right? They might send money home to family. They might get, like, care packages from family with, with special snacks and, and foods that you can only get there. Uh, in my case, I, you know, any, I go up to Canada once or twice a year to, to visit family. I've got a little bank account up there. I've got some connections. I, you know, I bring back candies that I can only get up there, and I've got the staff all addicted to coffee crisp candy bars. Um, you know, it's just like a mind control thing. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, um, you'll love the candy bars. And uh, then when we... When, you know, we, when I bum into the Canadians, we talk Canada stuff. We don't mean to. It just happens, right? I love it here. I'm here by choice. I chose to resettle like, like most people in the United States, whether them or their parents or grandparents or great grandparents or great, great, great grandparents. We've chosen to be here by choice. But as long as my citizenship is not here, I have some ties to the country named on my passport. It's unavoidable. Well, what about as a follower of Christ Jesus? Your primary citizenship is not the United States of America. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's God's kingdom. So, do you maintain ties to the homeland? Do you maintain heavenly ties? Right? Do you associate with others of heavenly citizenship in a, in a meaningful way, in a small group or someplace where you actually talk about the homeland? Right? Do you, do you crave and, and hunger for the, the food of heaven, which is God's word, both scripture and Jesus himself? The living bread. Do you, do you communicate with your heavenly father? Do you invest financially in the concerns of heaven? Do you maintain ties to the homeland, because that's where your citizenship is. If you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is in heaven. We are temporary residents in this world. But honestly, and I need to be reminded of this often, we often live like we're going to be here forever. We were, we were reminded again this week, the loss of a dear friend. We actually don't stay here very long. We don't stay here very long. So whether we want to be or not, we're temporary. We're temporary. We, we don't know how many days we have left. We, we don't know when Jesus will return. But all in all, it's not a long time. Every believer is a temporary resident. So I would just say, first of all, make sure you know with certainty, that you know with certainty where you have residence, where you have citizenship. And then live like it. Because when you follow Christ, you, you trade your passport of this world for a heavenly passport. 
All right, that's kind of talking about that citizenship. But then Peter jumps into a little more definition of, of the business of being God's chosen people, God's elect, how it happens, why it matters. Peter makes what we would call, and if you love theology and doctrine, that kind of thing, he, he makes what we would call a Trinitarian declaration. Anything, time you're talking about something Trinitarian or Trinity, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and he's saying here that our salvation is a work of God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Son, along with our own part, our own response. He writes this. I think we have this one on screen. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Galatia, etc. God, the Father, knew you and chose you. Okay, that's God's work. God, the Father, knew you and chose you long ago. His Spirit has made you holy. That's the... the Word there, if you're translated more directly, would be sanctified, which is sanctified just means to, to make holy or to set apart for God's purposes, right? And he goes on to say, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In between there, he's saying, you know, as a result, you've obeyed him, right? You, 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 you've, New International Version says you've, you are saved to be obedient to Jesus. You're saved by God's work for the purpose of obedience, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says you are God's workmanship or God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus, right, for the good works prepared in advance for you to do. God knows what kind of good works are going to be a good fit for you, so he's set them apart. He's, he's prepared tasks and he's saying these are going to be purpose, perfect for Brian. These are going to be perfect for John. These are going to be perfect and I will prepare these good works in advance for you to do. So how are you saved? God, God chose you, selected you. The Holy Spirit made you holy, sanctified, as I already mentioned. Jesus cleanses you. That means He forgives your sin, washes you new by His blood. And your response, you obey. Now, like I said before, people get a little stuck on this business of God choosing, God electing. The original language says, those whom God foreknew. It tells me that God is actually God knows you before you come to Him. He, he is aware of who you are. He knows everything about you in advance. And it's not to say that you don't have a choice in the matter. But God knows those who are going to choose. Like I said, don't fry your brain trying to figure this one out. Because it's hard. It's really hard to understand. But He knows who's going to respond to His mercy. But He's not surprised by anybody. He doesn't say... Oh, Brian, I didn't expect him. <laughs> Boy, I, okay, um, yeah, uh, yeah, he can come along too. No, he, he knows already in advance. Now, um, the miracle is that God was at work in your life before you came to him. God was at work in your life before you chose him. Maybe you've not, maybe you're somewhere you're not to that place of salvation yet. You're not sure if you're going to trust Jesus. This whole business is, is even real. But you need to know that God is at work in your life already. Because He knows you already. He foreknew you. Jesus already suffered on the cross for your sin, to take the punishment for your sin, past, present, future. So, because God chooses, because the Holy Spirit sanctifies, because Jesus cleanses us, our response is to live in obedience to Him. We don't obey Jesus so that we'll be saved. We obey because we are saved. 
You can write that one down if you're taking notes. This is the next one. We live right as a response to salvation, not as a requirement for salvation. It's a response to salvation, not a requirement for salvation. People get kind of awkward about this, right? Especially if, if, if someone's not a believer yet, they might say something like, well, I need to get my life together. I've got to get my, my act cleaned up before I can become a Christian. But if you could save yourself... You don't need Jesus. And, and a person who cleans up, and honestly, you all know people who have really cleaned up their life without Christ. But all you're doing when you clean up on your own, you're just trading your self-indulgence for self-righteousness. Neither of which is going to get you anywhere with God. It's not pleasing to Him. Okay, someone else might say, well, I, I can't be saved. I'm, I'm too rotten. I've done too many bad things. You know, you've all met that person, you invited them to church and they said... No, uh, you don't understand. If I walked into church, the roof would probably collapse on on us, right? Uh, it's lightning will strike if I if I walk in that place. You, you've met people like that, which is really a remarkable thing to to say that you know my sin is too big for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That Jesus can only handle you know easy sins like you know lying and cheating and and stealing. He can handle those, but kind of the tough stuff, no, he, he couldn't deal with that, right? Then you got. Most people who are going to say, well, I don't need to be saved. I'm a good enough person. Right? Or even, there's no such thing as salvation. This is the person who says, I'm pretty good. I've, what? Never killed anyone. Yet. And, um, right? All of that's just basically admitting that on, we're on our own. We're too dumb to realize that we need to be saved. So those are kind of the three categories of, of well, I've got to get cleaned up first, or I can't be saved, I've done too many bad things, or I don't really need to be saved. Imagine it this way. When I was little, toddler, I'm told I love to play in the dirt. We were raised on a small farm. My dad was a school teacher. We had a little raspberry farm, some acreage. And in the summertime, I love to play in the dirt. I'm told it. That my mom would put me in the bath two or even three times a day. And it's, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't OCD or anything. Like she just, like I just was that filthy all the time. Loved it. Loved being in the dirt. And if there's mud, even better. Just loved it. Um, you know, I remember that feeling of the mud squishing between your toes. It's like the best thing ever when you're a little kid. It's fantastic, right? So imagine this. It's bath time for toddler Brian. And to use the same excuses I just mentioned, for those who refuse salvation, Toddler Brian might have said, well, I need to get cleaned up before I get in the bath. Just think about how absurd that statement is. Right? Or, well, I'm too dirty to take a bath. That's just nonsense, isn't it? Or, I don't need a bath because there is no dirt. My reality says that I'm clean enough. I'm just fine the way I am. All of those are ridiculous statements. But toddlers, two-year-olds, do stuff like that. I don't need a bath. I don't want a bath. Right? They, They revolve, they rebel against that stuff. But here's the thing. The mom actually knows what's needed. The mom is the authority and she has the overall perspective and say, this child's getting in the bath. They need it. The mom can say, I chose you. 
Right? I set you apart for this bath. I'm cleansing you from the dirt. It's my job to do that, not yours. That's the mom's job. It's the same thing with God. All the hard stuff is done by Him. He's got the overall perspective of what we need. He does the work of finding you, of making you holy, of cleansing you, cleaning you up. So what part of any of that could you possibly accomplish on your own? The answer is none of it. None of it. So what do we do then? We live not for salvation, but in response to salvation. You've heard me say this before, that you're not saved on credit. You don't get saved now, pay it back later. You don't get kind of started on salvation, and then you finish it up on your, on your own. You don't, you, you don't, you know, prove that you're worthy of salvation in the first place. None of those things is true. All you get to say is, wow, I'm a mess. I, I was, I still am, <laughs> but God chose me. The Holy Spirit sanctified me. That Jesus is cleansing me. So what now? I'm going to live in obedience to Him. Basically, I'm saying, I'm going to stay out of the mud. And every time I step back into the mud, which I do, we all do, knowing every time we get dirty again, Jesus takes care of it because He is in the process of cleansing us by His shed blood on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Amazing? We think, I'm not good enough. I, I've, I've taken up too many chances. No, because His blood covers it all. Past, present, and future. There's no, there's no end to the, His kindness on those things. I wonder if you have really allowed God to do that work of selecting you, of sanctifying you, of cleansing you. If you, if you really have trusted Him, you know, have you... Have you stopped trying to show how worthy you are, how good you are, how, how Christian you are, and instead chosen to live by faith? I, you know, I, I, I cringe a little anytime someone says, well, I'm just trying to be a good Christian. No, st- stop it. <laughs> stop it. How about trusting Jesus and let Him do the work in your life? Now then, Peter wraps up this opening salutation here with a little phrase, something very similar to the Apostle Paul often says when he writes, May God give you more and more grace and peace. Or if you read New International Version or another, it'll say grace and peace be yours in abundance. That means lots and lots piled up high. Now, why would you say this? I mean, why would Peter write this when, you know, we got grace and peace at salvation. That should be enough, right? Why would you need more grace and peace when you've already been chosen and sanctified and forgiven? Here's why. It's impossible to have too much grace and peace. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. It's impossible to have too much grace and peace. If you think it's impossible to have, if you think it's possible to have too much grace, you haven't understood grace yet. Right? And not only that, you need grace to function every single day. You need grace not only for the moment of your salvation, but for daily living in Christ. Grace to say yes to Jesus and grace to say no to the world. Grace to accept His forgiveness when you mess up. You need grace to behave right at all. And for sure, we need more grace and peace to be kinder people, to be 
more patient and loving, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We, we need grace and peace to grow in those, not just toward people that we like, but everyone we encounter. And then keeping in mind that things go wrong. People disappoint you. They, they let you down. They, they might even rip you off or betray you or hurt you, especially because you are an exile, a foreigner in this world. You'll need grace and peace because foreigners often don't get treated very well. You no doubt have heard stories of, of people who've come to this country. Maybe in your own family you've got one of these stories. Come to this country and someone here takes advantage, rips them off. You know, you hear these just heartbreaking stories of people who are trying to get to America and someone makes promises and, and cleans them out. Foreigners often don't get treated very well. So you're going to need grace and peace. Peter is going to remind these people that later in the letter that to be a believer also means you're going to get mocked as a, as a believer. You're going to get you know, picked on and bullied and persecuted and made fun of and excluded and humiliated and ignored. And you think, well, wait, I shouldn't have to deal with those things. I'm a child of the king. I, I should be exempt from those things. It's not fair. And you're right, it's not fair. And it would be great to be exempt from those things, except it's part of the package of following Jesus. Imagine if Jesus said, well, I, I'm fine with saving everybody, but I shouldn't have to suffer to do this. I mean, really, I'm, I'm Jesus. I wouldn't have blamed him for saying something like that. But what if Jesus had said, I'm not doing that. So you're going to need some grace and peace to handle those things. I want you just for a moment to think of in your life, think of the person who's like the kindest, most gracious person that you know. Just take a moment. Might be a family member. Might be somebody you know from church. Might be somebody from your past. The kindest, most gracious, least judgmental person you know. You got somebody in mind? Now, would you say they are too gracious? Would you say they are too kind? Or are you amazed at their ability to love people, to accept them, to show kindness to them? When they're wronged, they forgive. When they're ignored, they wait. When they're taken advantage of, they're generous. Some of those people in your life aren't even Christians yet. Some of you have encountered people, you're like, why is my coworker at work so much better than all the Christians I know. Ever been had a situation like that? I'll tell you why. I think God's already at work in their life. God's already answering the prayer for an abundance of grace and peace in their life. And He wants to draw them to Himself. He's already working in their life. Listen, when I think of those people in my life, I want to be more like that, not less like that. I need more grace and peace in my life. In abundance. Because it's impossible to have too much grace and peace. It's impossible to be too kind. Really. It's impossible. What part of Peter's greeting here is for you today? It could be one of three things. Do you, do you need to be reminded that you're just a temporary resident here? That, that you need to make stronger ties to the homeland? You need to, to make a better investment in, in where you're going to go rather than where you are right now? 
If that's, if that's you today, I would just challenge you to say, Lord, forgive me for living like I'm here forever. Because you're not. Maybe you need to be reminded that it was God who chose you. The Spirit who sanctified you. Jesus who's cleansing you. And you need that reminder. And, and maybe you need to say, God, I'm, I'm sorry for trying to prove how good and, and worthy I am. Instead, I, I just want to live obedient to Jesus. And to trust you and not myself for salvation. Maybe, maybe you're kind of living, just ignoring other people. Living kind of selfishly. Living as I'm number one. My concerns are most important. And you run people over in the process. And you may not even mean to, but you just, you just haven't been very kind to people around you. Maybe if that's you, you, you need to say, God, I, I need more grace and peace in my life. And you just want to tell God, I need an abundance of those things. Grace to live for you. Grace to be loving toward others. One of those in there. A reminder of, of who you are, a foreigner in this world. A reminder of what you need, an abundance of grace and peace. All made possible because Jesus is the one cleaning you up let's pray together god we're (laughs) well without you we are really a mess we're kind of a mess even with you but lord we really are a mess without you and so we just say today we are we are humbled to know that you've chosen sanctified and cleansed us and lord we want to live in response to that today god i pray for an abundance of grace and peace in our lives to be more like you would want us to be. Let you doing that work in us. Lord, I thank you that our world is temporary. I think that we're not stuck here forever. But you have prepared a place for all who trust in you. And Lord, we want to we live with our eyes wide open for what's to come. And not purely focused on what's here. We thank you for your great mercy over us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.